Well, welcome back uh, to the book of Mark after a 13-week stint in the book of Colossians. Uh, so amazing just to get to hear the fruit of what the Lord has done in each of your lives over the last several weeks. Um, today's sermon text is Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Mark 5, 1 through 20, and it's on page 840 in the Pew Bibles, in the, the chair under you. Um, the title of the sermon is Spirits, Salvation, and Swine. Mark 5, 1 through 20. So if you remember back to when we started this series, Mark is what's known as a gospel account. Uh, in scripture, there are multiple different genres. Um, genres like narrative, wisdom literature, apocalyptic, letter or, or epistle, which is what Colossians was, and gospel. Uh, gospel is a word that we know simply means good news. Um, and that's what a gospel account essentially is. It's the story of Jesus's life told from the perspective of one of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And while each of these gospel writers has specific distinctives and angles they're telling the story from, they're all telling the same story. And so briefly to catch us back up to speed in the book of Mark, Mark was written by a guy named John Mark who traveled with Paul and Barnabas um, earlier in their missionary journeys. We know from the book of Acts that John Mark, as we even learned a couple weeks ago, was fired by Paul uh, and then reconciled to him later in life. Most importantly, uh, we believe that Mark got his information from the Apostle Peter, who Mark served as a secretary. Uh, in fact, if you go read Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 10, uh, the structure of Acts chapter 10 is almost identical to the structure of the Gospel of Mark. Um, a couple things just quickly to keep in mind as we jump back into Mark are these. Number one, Mark was the first Gospel written. Uh, most scholars believe that Mark was the first one to ever even write this genre called gospel. Um, so Mark's the first one written, and both um, Matthew and Luke specifically use most of the information that, that Mark brings forward. Second, uh, Mark moves quickly. So it's the shortest gospel, but it also moves at a fast pace. You'll see him over and over and over and over again saying, and immediately this, and immediately this, and immediately this. Uh, he seems to want to get us somewhere quick. He doesn't waste much time beating around the bush. In fact, uh, Mark has the smallest amount of actual teaching of any of the Gospels. Uh, instead, he seems more concerned to give us the major, fact of, major facts of Jesus' life and ministry. Um, third, Mark is known for highlighting what's known as the blindness of the disciples. Uh, we'll see time and time and time again how the disciples just plain out whiff. Uh, they don't seem to get it, who Jesus is, over and over and over again. And I, I find that strangely encouraging uh, as someone who often misses the point uh, in life and discipleship. Um, fourth and finally, Mark isn't a, a biography or a chronological account of Jesus. Uh, it's meant to be what's known as a witness document or something like a tract that someone could hand out to give a summary of the significant moments of Jesus's life and his work. So before we dive back in, I want us just to consider one last thing before diving into the text. One of uh, the main questions that Mark is asking and then answering repetitively is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? We saw in chapter 1 that Jesus is the new Adam, the king of Psalm chapter 2. We learn very quickly that Mark tells us that Jesus is the son of God. He's the new Israel. He has power over demons and diseases. More important than that, we learn in chapter 2 of Mark that he has the authority and power to forgive sins. He's the Lord of the Sabbath and the light of the world. The book of Mark is amazing for so many reasons, but if you've been following along, one neat thing about Mark is that he doesn't hide the ball. He answers the full question, who is Jesus, 
in almost every single story that he tells. Uh, this week, Tyler and I were, were talking about uh, the book of Mark, and Tyler said it this way. He said, if Mark were a movie and you got up to go to the bathroom and you came back and missed a whole scene, you wouldn't really have missed anything. Uh, you'd come back and pick up the full story in the very next section. So he's repetitively shown Jesus to be the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. Uh, finally, in Mark chapter 4, where we left off last time, 13 weeks ago, uh, we saw Jesus calm a storm with the word of his mouth. Once again, it left the disciples in the boat with him asking this question. This is where we left off, the disciples asking the question, Who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. And it's to that question that we turn again today, picking up where we left off. So if you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do, follow along with me in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. This is the word of the Lord. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came out to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit, them, permit them, him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Our four main points for today's text are these. Number one, captivity. Number two, judgment. Number three, freedom. And number four, commission. So point one, captivity. So... After a full day of ministry on the other side of the sea, Jesus was out on a boat with the disciples. He stilled a storm, proving himself to be Lord of creation. And then they hit the shore on the other side. In true Markan fashion, they hardly get both feet in the sand when immediately a demonized man comes running at them. Can you imagine that? If you're one of Jesus' disciples, what are you thinking in that moment? Do, do we tackle him? Do we run? Should we get back on the boat? But then you realize who it is that you're with. 
You just witnessed Jesus stilling a storm with a word of his mouth. He's not phased. I think of Psalm chapter 8 here. Psalm chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. It says, when I look at your heavens and the work of your hands, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? If Jesus is the Lord of creation, he's also Lord over men and demons. And in this story, we're going to see that to be exactly the case. So, from the beginning, I want us to understand who it is that runs at Jesus and the disciples here on the beach. We'll learn soon that this man's name was Legion. More on that later. But I just want to point out that this probably wasn't the name that his mama gave him. Mark wants us to see that this man has undergone a transformation, but not in a good way. His story is heartbreaking. Just stop for a moment and consider this man's humanity. It's easy for us to read stories like this and forget that this man was a real human being. His story is miserable. It's sad gut-wrenching. For all intents and purposes, this man in our text was a slave. His life was completely controlled by evil, and specifically by an unclean spirit. This is the way that Mark describes demons, an unclean spirit. And for a Jew, it's the worst thing that could happen, to be declared unclean. Now, This isn't the main point of the text, but I just want us to realize that the demonic realm is a real thing. Mark and the other writers of Scripture, they just talk about things like this straightforwardly. They don't assume that they they even need to defend the realness of the spiritual world. In C.S. Lewis's famous book, The Screwtape Letters, he wrote this. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils, meaning demons. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist and a magician with the same delight. I think that's correct both an over-infatuation with demons and a denial of their existence is a win for Satan. So, from the start here, let's see that demons are real, and they've absolutely wreaked havoc on this real man's life. He's isolated from the rest of humanity. He's not himself. He's hopeless and alienated. Notice that the text in verses 2, 3, and 5 tells us that he lived among the tombs. Mark's repetitive about that. Mark isn't trying to paint a picture of a guy who's doing pretty well for himself. This guy is spiritually dead. And this is key. I don't want us to just assume that this guy was an innocent bystander who just got overwhelmed by a bunch of demons that ruined his life. No, this man's sin problem was what led to his demon problem. In fact, this man's sin problem was a bigger deal than his demon problem. Further, the text tells us that he lived in the country of the Gerasenes in a region known as the Decapolis, or the Ten Cities. So, what does that mean? It means that we know that this was a Gentile region. And as we'll see soon, presence of pigs. This is where the Gentiles lived. So this guy has an unclean spirit. He lives among dead bodies. He lives among unclean people. Shackles and chains couldn't bind him. No one had the strength to subdue him. He's always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Pretty 
bleak picture of the power of sin. It's completely destroyed this man's life. Understand this. Every single human being, every single human being, is made in the image of God. Marred though that is in all of us, every human being is created in the image of God. So do you understand what Satan has done here? He's attacking the image of God through destroying this man. God's glory is at stake here. Now, two points I want to make. Number one, do we understand sin in this way? Do we understand sin in this way? Do we realize, as James chapter 1, verse 15 says, that sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death? Sin isn't a playful thing. It's not glamorous. It's not something to be taken lightly. It destroys lives. And this man in our text is a striking example that we're given in the scriptures. We should also understand this. Sometimes, as with this man, the, the effects of sin and the, uh, the presence of demons, it's manifestly gross and transparent for all to see. Other times, not so much. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 14 and 15 says this. It says, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So sin masquerades itself in multiple ways. But whether it looks like this man, Legion, or someone more civilized, the point is it's no less destructive. Do we see sin in this way? Second, do we realize that while most of us don't look like this man, before Christ, we're all this man. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 says this. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom... We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Again, this isn't to say that we were all demonized like this man, but our spiritual lives were no less captive and no less dead. You remember what Paul said to the Colossian church, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, he told them and he told us that before Christ, they were all alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That sounds a lot like legion in Mark chapter 5. Alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. If you don't know Jesus, the disease is the same. You may not be demonized like this man, but the description, according to Scripture, fits. It was true of all of us before we met Christ. But praise be to God, that isn't the end of our story. And it wasn't the end of Legion's story either. Let's look at what happened next. Point two, judgment. Now look with me again at verses six and seven. It says, and when he, meaning Legion, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Do you see the power of Jesus here? This man who can't be held by people or chains falls down before Jesus. The word here is proskuneo, which is the word for worship that's used in Scripture. 
Even the demons know who Jesus is and bow down before him. Think about that. Hear this loud and clear. I don't know what it is that you're going through right now, but Jesus is more powerful. As we sang earlier, he's better. I don't know what you might have gotten yourself into. Jesus is better. There's nothing in this universe more powerful than Jesus Christ. Do you believe this? Romans chapter 14, verses 10 and 11 says this. It says, For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. Similarly, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him, meaning Jesus. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Is this what you would expect out of a demon-possessed man? That he'd run to Jesus and fall down in worship and proclaim him to be the Most High God? I want us to understand this. In studies of world religions, one commentator says this. He says, even in cultures that believed there was a God in every tree and rock and every river, there was a hazy understanding of a mighty God who lived on the other side of the mountain. An ineradicable idea in every tribe, despite their polytheism and animism, of one God who was most high. All of them have the idea of one God who transcends all other gods, who is the most high God. That's what these demons are proclaiming Jesus to be. Remember, our overarching question in the book of Mark is what? Who is Jesus? He's the son of the Most High God. He's the one before whom every knee will bow in worship. He's not just a good man or even just a prophet. Good men and prophets can't still storms. They're not acknowledged in this way by demons. This man, who many reasonably would have said was beyond hope, ran to Jesus fell down before him in worship. And what happened next is astounding. Look at verses 8 through 13. It says, For he was saying to him, this means Jesus speaking to Legion, he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about two thousand, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. So Jesus commands the demon to come out of the man, and then almost as an aside, ask the man his name. To which he responds, My name is Legion, for we are many. Now, a Roman legion was comprised of 6,000 soldiers and 120 horsemen. Kent Hughes reminds us that to the Jewish mind, the name Legion brought an image of great numbers, efficient organization, and relentless strength. Satan's opposition to the kingdom isn't haphazard, is it? It's strategic. It's well-organized. Again, I want to ask us the question. Do we understand the spiritual world in this way? My guess is, if you knew you were going to battle against an army this organized and this strong, two things would be true. Number one probably wouldn't take it lightly. And number two, you wouldn't go alone. 
Friends, this is the world we live in. This is reality. The spiritual battle, though often unseen, is real. So don't take it lightly. Don't go at it alone. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11 through 18. Oh, Grace read it for us earlier. Ephesians 6, 11 through 18. It says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Take this seriously. Know the truth. Pursue righteousness. Run with the gospel of peace. Grow in faith. Use the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray, both for yourself and for all the saints. So, practically, what does it look like to wield the sword of the Spirit? There are so many truths that could be taught here, but I just want to try to give us some practical advice. Wielding the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, it is more than just simply reading the Bible, even though that's a good thing. I can read 30 pages of any given book and be no better for it if I don't know what I'm doing or don't know what the purpose is. So here's some practical advice. When you open your Bible to read, bare minimum, consider these three things. Number one, what does this text teach me about God? That's a question we should be answering every single time we open the Word. What does this text teach me about God? In other words, each time you read your Bible, you should know God better. Second, what do I need to repent of? Said another way, what does this text reveal about my own heart that needs to change? So, what does this text teach me about God, and what do I need to repent of? Third, how does this text draw me more towards Jesus? If you can answer those three questions each time you open your Bible, you'll be wielding the sword well. Don't take the spiritual realm lightly. Second, don't go alone. Do you realize that first and foremost, if you're a Christian, you're not alone. God has given you the gift of the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11, Paul's clear on this. He says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So if you're a Christian, you have the Spirit. Verse 10, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. You're not alone. You have the Spirit of Christ living in you. And according to 1 John 4, 4, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Know that truth. But that's not all. God, in addition to the Spirit, has also given you his people. Isn't that a glorious thing? This is another reason that being connected to a part of a local church is so vital to our spiritual lives. We need each other. 
We're in a raging battle against spiritual forces, and we need each other. We need to encourage one another. We need to speak the gospel to one another. We need to weep with each other. We need to hold one another accountable. We aren't designed to fight the battle alone. And so be meaningfully connected. Know others. Be known by others. Again, to get really practical here, I'll give you three things that you can do immediately and know if you've done them by the end of next week. First, if you want to be meaningfully connected to a body, join a missional community. That's for our church, where outside of Sunday, you can know people and be known by people. Talk to Tyler, talk to me, talk to Ross, talk to Dustin. We'd love to get you plugged in. Second, find places to serve. But Renee has made a whole list of ways that you can serve here at Santa Cruz Baptist. We've got job descriptions out on the table each week of ways that you can plug in and serve the body. Simply showing up and consuming on any given Sunday doesn't lead to meaningful Christian connection. Serving is a part of of not going at the Christian life alone. It connects you to people in meaningful ways that allows life-on-life discipleship to happen. Third, consider becoming a covenant member here. Uh, Membership here at Santa Cruz Baptist, it's more than just a list that we keep of numbers to kind of one-up the church down the street. It matters to us. We take it seriously. Because we believe the Bible does. Membership is part of being seriously committed to real people in real ways. It's where your talk becomes your walk. It's where your faith becomes action. It's so easy to talk about loving people. So easy to talk about being patient with people. It's harder to actually do it with the real people that God has placed around you. Membership is part of what it means to be meaningfully meaningfully connected to the body of Christ in a way that grows you. We'll be having uh, our next membership classes on October 18th and 25th. If you're interested in that, come talk to me. We do a whole three-hour class on what membership is and what it looks like here at the church. So I encourage you toward that. So take the spiritual realm seriously. Don't go at it alone. So this legion of demons, they beg Jesus to not send them out of the country. And Jesus, surprisingly, grants their request. Look at what happens. Verses 11 through 13, it says, Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. So many people throughout history have been puzzled by this story. Why why did Jesus do what he did? And why the need for so much destruction? Think about it. 2,000 pigs. (laughs) That's a lot of pigs and a lot of money. This was big business. More on this later. So why did Jesus permit this? Well, for one thing, the horrible power of these demons was fully exposed. It was obviously that they would destroy whatever they inhabited. So everyone who was there that day, the disciples, the herders, and especially Legion, They saw on full display the destructive nature of Satan. They would never take sin lightly again. Second, this displayed the power of Jesus. If these demons were destructive and strong enough to send 2,000 pigs to their demise, how powerful must Jesus be who cast them out with a word? Third, It's very possible that these herders were compromising Jews who were profiting off of the sale of pork 
to these unclean Gentiles on the other side of the sea. If this is the case, Jesus is here taking a pot shot at their secularism and their materialism. If we're offended by what Jesus does, maybe there's something here for us. But most significantly, I believe that what Jesus was doing was for this man named Legion. If Jesus simply just cast the demons out, how could Legion be sure that they'd never return? He couldn't. Instead, Jesus took Legion's pain and shame and torment, and in a way that Legion would never forget as long as he lived, Jesus sent them into the pigs and into their permanent destruction. Immediately, these 2,000 pigs became vehicles for judgment. It was an epic display. But again, this isn't the end of the story. Point three, freedom. Look again at the text, verses 14 through 17. It says, The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had sent it, seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. There's two truths I want us to see here. Number one, through Christ, this man experiences complete freedom. Number two, sadly, the people hate it. First, look at what the text says about the man. Verse 15, they saw the demon-possessed man, then, in past tense, the one who had had the legion. Something has dramatically changed here. He's sitting there clothed and in his right mind. As we did before, I just want you to sit in that for a second. Realize this man's humanity. He's not a fictional character. This is a real human being who was absolutely wretched and now is clothed and in his right mind. This is the compassion and the power of Jesus Christ. This is the goodness of God. I understand this. This is what God has been in the business of doing since day one. In the garden, in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve rebelled against a holy God. They sinned and tried to place themselves on God's throne. What was God's response? Instead of obliterating them, which he would have been just in doing, by the way, God clothes them. They realized they were naked. In Genesis 3, verse 21, it says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. God sacrifices an animal and covers up their shame. Friends, do you realize that God's still in the business of doing this exact same thing? If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, we want you to know this. First, all of us, myself included, deserve God's full and just wrath for our sins. That's the true predicament of human nature. But there's the good news. It, it doesn't matter how bad you are. It doesn't matter if you're legion himself. There's no one too far gone for Jesus to cover. The Bible teaches us that Jesus lived a perfect life in every single way. He obeyed every single one of God's command every single second of every single day of his entire life. Are you ready for it? For those who turn from sin and trust in Jesus, we get clothed in that righteousness. 
It's put on us like a garment, according to Scripture. When God looks at us, he sees Jesus' righteousness. He sees Jesus' perfection. That perfection is credited to us. No longer are we debtors, because our debt was paid by Jesus on the cross. All of the wrath that we deserved was poured out on Jesus. And we are credited with his righteousness. It's the most glorious exchange in the history of the world. That's what happened to Legion. He's transformed. He's new. He's clothed. And you can be too. Let go of your sin and trust in Christ. If that's you today, we'd love to talk to you after the service. Come find me. I would love to tell you more. Now, if that happened in your town, what would you imagine would be the response? The man you've watched your whole life, the man you've warned your kids not to go near, the man who lived in the tombs, who cried out day and night, the man whose life was completely in shambles, is now clothed in his right mind. He's free. You'd expect a celebration and rejoicing. But that's not what happens, is it? Unfortunately, they care more about the pigs. And they want Jesus out of there. You see it? By doing what Jesus did, Jesus showed this man and all who witnessed it that Legion's soul was worth more than 2,000 pigs. Jesus had already taught his disciples that they're more valuable than the sparrows and the flowers of the field. But this? I'm not sure how much a pig was worth in that day, but depending on the size, on average, a pig today is worth $250 each. 2,000 pigs is a half a million dollars. That's not even including the fact that they reproduce and supply a continual income forever. Jesus is saying, yes, this man's soul is more valuable than 2,000 pigs. This is a human being made in the image of God. Jesus is saying, whatever it takes, I'm going to redeem this man, whatever it costs. He doesn't even take time to do the calculation. He doesn't even think twice. This man's soul was more valuable than 2,000 pigs. You see the amount of compassion Jesus has here? Can you imagine the amount of gratitude that Legion must have had in this moment? Really, Jesus? 2,000 pigs? For, for me? Well, here's the deal. For Christians, Jesus sacrificed something even more valuable than swine. He sacrificed himself. We, like Legion, should be the most grateful people on the planet. Your soul has infinite value. Jesus paid the ultimate price to redeem it. But not everyone responds positively to Jesus. Remember this. This was big, big, big business. These pig herders are ticked. Jesus had messed with their wallets. They valued pigs more than Legion's salvation. Even more... Were they afraid that if Jesus hung around too long, that he'd change them too? Is it any different today? So often, we care more about our livelihood than the souls of men and women. Further, we'd rather cling to the sins that are ultimately going to destroy us 
than allowing Jesus to get too close. Jesus, depart from our region. Now, most of us wouldn't blatantly say something like this. Do we really want Jesus in our lives? The real Jesus. One of the ways that we often tell Jesus to go is by clinging to false Jesuses or half-Jesuses. Let's be honest. There are so many false Jesuses out there. The Jesus of health and wealth. The genie-in-a-bottle Jesus who just gives me exactly what I want. The progressive Jesus who looks exactly like our current culture and never disagrees with anything. When we embrace any of these, we're telling the real Jesus to depart, that we don't want him. Don't do that, friends. Do we really want Jesus, the real Jesus, in our lives? If we do, he won't leave us changed. He won't leave us unchanged. There's a real cost when Jesus invades your life. So will you allow him to, or will you reject him? Do you want to go with Jesus, or do you want Jesus to go? That's the choice every single human being faces. Finally, point four, commission. Very briefly, look with me at our last three verses. Verses 18 through 20. It says, As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Strange, isn't it? The demons beg Jesus. He permits it. The people beg Jesus to leave. He does. But this man begs Jesus, and it's denied. What's up with that? Here's the simple truth. Jesus doesn't give his followers everything they want. But he always gives them what's best for them. I'm sure hopping back on the boat with Jesus would have been great in that moment. But it's clear that Jesus had a higher purpose for this man. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And then the man does exactly that. What a glorious commission. Not only had this man been healed, He got to be an instrument for the Redeemer's hands for his friends. Later on in Mark, we're going to see that this man was actually effective in his evangelism. In Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 37, Jesus returns to this place, to the Decapolis. And people immediately show up and bring him a deaf and dumb man to be healed. They believe that Jesus can deliver the man. Why? Because of legion who did exactly what Jesus commanded him here in this text. Here's the deal. Every single one of us as Christians has been given the same commission as Legion. Go, tell your friends how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. It's that simple. Yes, we should be able to articulate the faith. Yes, we should be able to give a defense of our faith, as we learned in 1 Peter 3 earlier. But first and foremost, we need to simply share our own stories of what the Lord has done for us. Everyone can do that, even me. I think of the blind man in John chapter 9, verse 25. He says, I don't know a whole lot, but the one thing I know is that I was blind. And now I see. I can tell that story. 
you can too. If you've known the grace and mercy of God, go tell your friends. I think it's important here to point this out. This guy isn't wrong in his desires in wanting to be with Jesus on the boat. His desires aren't wrong. We should all want to be with Jesus now and forever. But if we're still here on this earth, Jesus has something more for us. He's kept us here to tell our story, and more importantly, his story. If you're a Christian, and you're still here on earth, which I'm assuming most of you are that I'm looking at, God has you here to represent him to your friends, your neighbors, your family, your co-workers, and to the ends of the earth. So, in conclusion, I want to end really practically and straightforwardly. If you know someone who's in captivity to sin, they might not look like legion, but they're slaves to sin, and you know it. Practically, you should care deeply. Who is that person? Write it down. Pray for them. Share your story. Share the gospel. Maybe you're the one who's captive to sin. Turn and trust in Christ today. You're never too far gone. Christ is supreme over all things. He can change you in an instant. Third, true freedom comes through Christ and Christ alone. And a soul is more valuable than swine. If you're a Christian, your schedule and your finances tell the accurate story on how much you believe that. Are souls more valuable than swine? Fourth, who are you called to share your story and God's story with this week? Jesus is powerful enough to still storms and cast out demons. He's powerful enough to transform your friends for his glory. Who is Jesus? That's exactly who he is. Let's pray.